Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Here's what we're going to do starting out this morning. Go to 1 Corinthians and turn to chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As I mentioned earlier, I'm really excited to say that we are uh, in the very last chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we've been in 1 Corinthians doing it verse by verse since uh, I looked it up September 12th of 2021, and this will be the first book that we've completed as a local church since we planted, and uh, it's pretty, pretty incredible. To, to get to look back and see. And I, the hope is that when you go back and read the book of 1 Corinthians, you will have a deeper understanding of uh, what it's all about. I know that I've kind of surveyed through it, but um, it basically took almost a year and a half to do. And as I said, we're going to finish up fairly soon, and then we're going to begin the book of Mark. We thought it would be good to go to one of the Gospels and, and, uh, and kind of switch and see learn about Christ and his ministry. So surveying the book chapter to chapter here, we realize that Paul's letter to the Corinthians was not exactly warm hugs and sweet kisses. It um, is primarily a letter of rebuke to the church at Corinth and sometimes a very sharp rebuke. In chapter one, he says he's gotten word that there are factions among them which leaders they followed. Some said, I, I am of Paul and others of Apollos. And so there were arguments going on. And of course, we know that the church should be unified. That's not, that's not good to see in the body of Christ in the local church. Chapter 2, he addressed their propensity to fawn over men who could use eloquent words and sway a crowd. That was their, that was their culture. These traveling wordsmiths were the modern-day celebrities in their day. And Paul drew a contrast between their worldly foolishness, which they called wisdom, and the foolishness of God, which is actual wisdom. In chapter 3, he called them fleshly men, infants, because of their jealousy and strife. So he's calling them names, uh, but they deserved it. In chapter 4, Paul makes an argument that they should imitate him as he imitates Christ, asking them to repent. And he told them that he would be coming... He asked the wayward Corinthians, he said, should I come to you with a spirit of gentleness or with a rod? And I think we all know what the rod means. It means correction. Chapter 5, he was dealing with their lack of church discipline concerning serious sexual immorality in the church. And uh, we see that in our modern day church. When it comes to church discipline, nobody talks about it. It's rarely even practice. There are all kinds of things going on in the church, and that ought not to be. So Paul is he's uh, scorning them for having not done anything about it. In chapter 6, he addresses the... Um, hold on. Chapter 6, he addressed their unchristian practice of suing one another in the church. And that is a practice that should never take place in the church. The elders are the ones who are supposed to uh, be there for the church if there are any 
uh, type of skirmishes in the church, they can take those to the elders, and the elders then decide and make a judgment, and the folks in the church submit to the decision of the elders, and then there's no uh, tarnishing of, of the church's witness or a Christian's witness out there suing each other in the world, okay? In chapter 7, he puts sexual immorality in the crosshairs, closing the chapter with, quote, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In all you do, in the things that you do, you should glorify God. In chapter 8, Paul warns of the lack of wisdom concerning their Christian liberty. And this is an area that many people like to take great liberties. They were indulging themselves, causing other Christians to stumble. All right. In chapter 9, Paul clarifies his credentials as an apostle. And if there were any doubt in their minds, which actually became an issue later on uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, that his credentials were also called into question. Um, So it was a recurring issue with the Corinthians. In this chapter, he also addresses the church's responsibility to give and make a priority to take care of the faithful ones preaching the word of God. In chapter 10, he warns them not to follow in the footsteps of ancient Israel after having been blessed by God. So many of the Israelites were uh, unbelieving idolaters. And in closing chapter 10, Paul clarifies that idolatry is something more than praying to a piece of carved wood or stone. Simply living a life with a lack of thankfulness and honor for God, who is our source, is indeed a form of idolatry. Look at Romans 1. What did it begin with? They essentially began to ignore God. They ignored that he existed and they did not give thanks. That's the beginning. That's the first step of idolatry. In 1031, he tells them, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, all for the glory of God. So my question to you this morning in considering that is, is Christ your first priority in your life? Do you know that he is your source? He's your one and only source. In chapter 11, he draws a distinction of male and female in the context of worship. And he says those lines should never be blurred. So it doesn't, even, it doesn't really matter the, the, the culture, what's going on. Just adhere to whatever that culture's uh, separation between male and female are. You can see how that uh, proposes an issue these days when we've got, I don't know, 457 different kinds of things that people identify as. So uh, then Paul narrows his focus to the Lord's table and their gross treatment of communion. And this is a holy, set-apart, very serious matter in the church. And because of their mistreatment, he said some in the church were actually very sick, physically ill, and even dying, bringing judgment on themselves. And for us in this church, if we take the bread and cup unworthily, if we, you know, don't examine ourselves and We too can be guilty of trivializing communion, trivializing the the bread and cup of our Lord. In chapter 12, Paul begins uh, his spirit-led description of what it looks like to be a spiritual person. He clarifies what their attributes are and are not. In the context of the unique situation in the first century, of course we know things worked a a little differently as we've learned in the past several weeks But the point of the gifts was to edify and unify the whole body, not for individuals to draw attention to themselves and be elevated in the minds of other Christians as the spiritual elite in the church. Like they've got some power that nobody else has and they're floating around, you know, three inches with their feet, three inches off the ground and lightning bolts shooting out of their fingertips. 
That's, that's silliness. The, living a spiritual life is very tangible and real and genuine. It's not all the craziness that so many people today attribute to the Spirit of God. If you want to know what a spiritual person is, a spiritual person does all to help and edify others. They think of others before themselves, which leads Paul into the beauty of chapter 13, a description of agape love. A spiritual person loves sacrificially. It's not about them. It's all about others. And that's the heart and practice of a true believer. So as, a, as beautiful as chapter 13 is, it's in the same way that you might see the beauty of a skilled surgeon using a scalpel. Okay, It's skillful cutting, but it, chapter 13 is like a poetic rebuke, and it's beautiful. But after clarifying what a spiritual person actually is by defining that their priority should be loving others, in chapter 14, he turns back to his argument about how genuine spiritual people within the church should conduct themselves in light of the spiritual gifts that God has given them. And the conclusion, no matter what gift you've been given, is that it has been given for you to love and edify others, period. That's it. It's not about you. It's not for you. It's for everyone else. So no matter what you do in the church, the motivation should be your love for others to unify and edify the body. And no gift is given for the purpose, as I said, of an individual at any time to be the center of attention. He closes chapter 14 with a definitive statement on the matter. Verse 40, if you look at verse 40 there in, in uh, chapter 14, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Creation is orderly. God just didn't just go, and things just, I mean, everything is precise. It's, it's incredibly beautiful. Well, worshiping God is, is the same thing. There should be order, and it should be proper, and that's how we worship God, okay? In, chapters, in chapter 15, Paul rightly begins with his clarifying the importance of the true gospel of Jesus Christ and holding to the word of God. He draws the attention of the Corinthians into an eschatological mindset. And by eschatological, again, let me, just, let me just redefine that for you. It's the study of end times, okay? But he launches into this powerful description of the resurrection of the believer. And in this chapter, Paul, for a moment, leaves the believer hopeless, considering the consequences if Christ has not indeed been raised from the dead. He leaves them for a moment in that hopelessness, but then he proclaims that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And there, from there, he builds up to this powerful crescendo where he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? We have the victory in Christ. We are eternally invincible. And knowing this then, knowing this subject matter in chapter uh, 15 there. How then should we live? It tells us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's where we should be considering the light of eternity. As the believer revels in the joy and exhilaration of that heavenly eternal truth, basking in that glorious light, if you will, of what lies ahead in that eternal hope for you and I, Paul then abruptly pulls the believer back down to earth with these words right here in verse 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Yeah, 
He did it. He brought up offering. He brought up the offering. He brought up giving, which is many, many Christians' least favorite subject in the Bible. And that's what he did. After this glorious, triumphant uh, chapter 15, he just jerks us right back down into reality. So if you will, turn with me to this chapter 16, verse 1, and stand as we read our passage this morning. This is the word of God. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to set something aside, saving whatever he has prospered, so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that now in this time as we open your word and we study, Lord, that it would fill us as the bread of life only can do. Lord, we know that you are our source. We know that you are our sustenance. Open the eyes, Lord Jesus, of our hearts and minds to see the truth and give us the courage to change our lives according to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we cannot start this section without considering why Paul placed it right here in this portion of his letter to the church at Corinth and what came just before it. And as I said, he took us to the heavenly heights of our final moments of our all of our temporal existence and exposed the victorious light of eternity. And it would be foolish for us to proceed without asking why the very next thing he writes is concerning giving among believers. The answer, considering what lies ahead, that our time here is temporary and our true heavenly rewards await and their eternal rewards. With that perspective, how then should we look at our material wealth on this earth and our belongings here in this temporal existence? What is the biblical believer to think about this? For what should our wealth and, and belongings be used? What should be the attitude of the believer concerning their money and how do we truly honor God with it? If that's the question, if you really want to honor God in every aspect of your life, this is an aspect of life that we have to consider. So what does Scripture tell us? Well, here Paul offers that perspective. First, Paul is speaking of a specific collection to be taken from among the churches for a specific reason. And I'll get to that specific reason in just a moment to give you a little background. But in this passage, he gives us principles to live by when it comes to our belongings and how we should give to the local church and outside of the local church. So this specific collection was instructed for the churches in order to help the impoverished saints in the city of Jerusalem. And there are several reasons why the believers in Jerusalem were having a difficult time. Many of them had stayed there after Pentecost and just decided to move to to Jerusalem, and that's where they lived after, after that. Um, so the city itself, though, was very poor, very, very poor, not even like the poor we see here in the U.S. We're talking third world country type poor. It was grossly overpopulated. And then you add to that their holy days and their feasts, and millions of people flooded into the city for those, for those events, and that just exacerbated the problem. The saints there had shared their homes with one another. In the early days of the church, we read about in Acts to take care of one another. They gave of their jewelry 
They gave up their land and so forth to make sure they provided for these fellow believers. Eventually, though, those resources ran out and with no help from the practicing Jews in the city. In fact, the practicing Jews were persecuting them. And if there were social programs available to help people, there, there was no way they were going to give money to these new followers of the way who had put their faith in this carpenter who had been crucified. They, they held back the money from them and left them in their poverty and persecuted them on top of that and even at times seized their property from them. The believers there in Jerusalem were truly suffering. So Paul, certainly inspired by the Spirit of God, administered this collection to be taken. Not only that, but Paul knew that the one thing that exposes the heart of a true believer like nothing else is to ask them to share, ask them to give. For the believer that had been the recipient of God's mercy and grace, as we all are, would they reciprocate that mercy and grace forward to love their brothers and sisters in Christ? And Paul knew this collection would both solidify the grateful heart of the believers in being an outward reflection of what they knew to be true on the inside, that they were sinners saved by grace, and God bestowed his mercy upon them, and therefore they would bestow mercy on others. Um, he also knew that it would show a great deal of unity within the body of Christ, that if everybody could get on the same page and give toward this cause, it would bring them all together in a way that perhaps wouldn't be available otherwise. So let us consider the primary motivation for giving. The primary motivation for giving. Number one, the primary motivation for giving. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Like nothing else, sharing our resources exposes our heart. It reveals uh, which source our trust rests upon. Is it our vocation or is it God? Is our gifting that pads our bank account? Is it the gifting that pads our bank account? In other words, the, the gifts that God gave you that make you great at what you do? Is it your gifts that pads your bank account? Or is it in fact the giver of all good gifts that has blessed you with those gifts in the first place? Every penny you have, everything that you have, it comes from him. So the primary motivation for giving is thankfulness and trust in God. So then if, that's, if thankfulness is the primary motivation, then what is the primary purpose for giving according to Scripture? Number two, the primary purpose according to Scripture is to support the saints in the church. Support the saints in the church. And this, of, this of course, begins with the faithful leadership, when you have faithful leadership in, in place. Now, let me just interject something here. In the past, admittedly, I have very much hated talking about the subject of giving. And the reason for that is because of the widespread manipulation and abuse I've seen in the church from pastors lining their own pockets and taking advantage of the sheep. It's absolute, absolutely disgusting, okay? I'm sure you've all witnessed that sort of thing as well. Um, but I'm, you know, it's selfish, quite honestly, to make it about me. And I was wrong, and I've repented, and, and so I'll no longer do that. Here's the deal. Uh, the Word of God is so clear on this matter that I can stand here and teach God's Word and boldly proclaim this truth as much as any other. And just like I've said that the text determines the length of the message. Well, in the same way, the text determines the subject matter for any given Sunday. 
So I didn't choose to speak on tithing today. It's in there. And whenever any subject matter comes up in Scripture, that's what Pastor Mike will be talking about on that Sunday. Uh, thankfully, none of you read ahead and skipped today because you didn't know that's what the message was going to be about. Um, so I've checked my heart, and in this study, I've been convicted myself of uh, a wrong attitude toward this. And I ask that you check your heart today as well and just obey what the Word of God says. Just honor God and what His Word says. So to repeat number two, the primary purpose of giving is to support the saints of God. First, the obvious primary need is for support of the pastor. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes of this very principle in verses 3 through 12, and he makes the case for supporting the faithful pastor financially. In verse 6, he asks, Do Barnabas and I not have authority to re refrain from working? In other words, we're pouring ourselves out for the ministry. We're working to lead you and guide you spiritually. Are we not worthy of support in order to do the work? Because you really cannot do both as a minister of God. Now, it's possible, obviously, and I've done it in the past. My dad was a bivocational preacher growing up. At times, he held three jobs. Um, but I'm just telling you, it's a very, very difficult thing for a pastor to do. Paul seems to state that it's not the proper way it should be done long term. That if the, there's a pastor and there are faithful elders in that church and they're worthy of being honored financially, then they should be. So in verse 7, he asks, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? So would you expect a soldier to go to war and finance the war for himself? He's got to buy his own guns, his own uniform and all that. Absolutely not. No, that should be provided for him. And uh, it says, Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Would you expect a gardener to give everything away that he's grown and, and not keep anything for himself. And then he said, who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock, considering the hard work and the time and toil that goes into watching after stupid sheep and, and putting that time and effort in, he should take from the flock. Amen? So then let's look there again at verse, uh, let's look at verse 6. I'm sorry, 7. I've already read that, sorry. Um, here he goes, verse 8. Let's go to verse 8. Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Now, what this means is in their day and time back then, they would hitch that ox up in that threshing floor and he'd trample out the grain and crush it into meal, okay? Okay. He's saying, do not cover the ox's mouth while the ox is trying to tread out the grain. Let him eat while he's, while he's working, okay? And then in, in 9b, he said, is God merely concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope. Of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, in 1 Timothy 
chapter 5, verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul instructs Timothy, he says this, The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. All right? The financial support of the church removes the financial burden from the pastor, and it frees his mind to concentrate on the things of God. And this ultimately benefits the people as the pastor passes biblical truths on to you and your family. As your pastor, I want to pour my life into this church, into you and your families. And I want to grow and learn and continue my education, become the best pastor that I can possibly be for your sake and for my sake. I want to preach the word until I die. Like we were talking the other day how, how awesome it would be if John MacArthur, when he went, he, was just, he just went in the middle of a sermon. That would be the best way to go for me. Let's just, I'll just kill over in the middle of a sermon, carry my body out. One of you pick up the Bible and continue. Okay, Don't even, don't even uh, bat an eye. But uh, I would love it. I would absolutely love it if I could continue to stand before you and some of you young people here, your grandkids, your children first. Okay, that's how it works. That's the, that's the order. Your children first and then your grandkids and maybe even your great-grandkids as, as a faithful preacher of God's word. Faithfully give of myself on your behalf to pray for you, to cry and laugh with you, to serve alongside you. And to teach you as long as the Lord allows, as long as he's allotted for me to live. Your faithfulness in giving contributes to that happening for me and my family. But it's not just for the pastor, okay? Let me just be clear. And I'm not just preaching this as a self-serving way to, to try to convince you of something you ought to do for me. I could be gone tomorrow. What are you going to do? What's, what's your practice going to be the day after when the next pastor comes in? Will you take care of him? This is a biblical principle. This is not about Michael Branch. It's not about the one who stands here now. It's any pastor who stands in that position. This is what Scripture teaches. All right? So it's not just about the pastor, though. The second priority is the giving for all, for all the saints, the benefit all the saints. We ought to support our brothers and sisters in need within the household of God first. And this should not be a chore. We should not do this apprehensively. I know how our culture is with their money. And I know how we are when we're inundated with people on the street. You go to L.A. or you go to San Francisco and there are people everywhere asking for money. And you can get jaded. And you need to use discernment when you come across people like that. You need to pray and ask the Lord. But ultimately, folks, even if you give to someone who's schmoozing you, the Lord's still going to bless that because your heart was in the right place. That guy's going to stand before God or that lady's going to stand before God as well. So don't get hung up on the, I'm not going to get taken. Just give freely and out of love and then let, let God bless you for having the right heart. And again, be discerning. If you know for a fact that that person is, you know, in Texas, we had the same people coming back to the church over and over again asking for hotels and, you know, and they were homeless and, there comes a point in time where loving someone is saying, hey, I'm turning the spigot off. Go figure something out. Like, go, go get a job. It's time. You're, you're able-bodied enough to go get a job. So that kind of tough love is fine. But just be discerning. But never let it uh, make you cynical or jaded to the point that you're not willing to give. Okay? Um, remember that this exposes our heart. And if there's a need that arises within a family in our local church... It's the priority that we make every effort to help 
them to whatever extent we can. So if we have folks in the church who are actually working and doing everything that they can do and they are in need, it is the church's priority to take care of the folks in our church, in our family. That's what we're called to do. Beyond that, after having taken care of the pastor, the saints in our church, then we should consider the saints outside of our church. We shouldn't be exclusive with our sharing. The church at Corinth here and the others included were collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. They were never going to meet those people, but yet they were still faithful. And they gave in love to honor Christ and to help those folks, okay? We should be prepared then, D, would be prepared to help anyone, non-Christians, strangers, anyone in need, when the Lord leads you to do so, all right? And so it's just having this attitude, this whole attitude with your money. Perhaps, you know, I know people who carry cash around in their car. They've got some in an envelope, and it's just in their glove compartment or whatever. And when the Lord leads them or they come across a situation, they give that to someone in need. And you never know when that may be. Now, I, I have the joy of sharing with you this week that last week, we, our church got to help out another family within the church financially. We also got to help out another believer outside of our church family. We gave them as well, both of which were in need of uh, the love. And so we loved on them. And that's, that's incredible that we have the opportunity to do that. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 16. As we continue, Paul is lining out the principles of giving for the church in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, On the first day of the week, each one of you is to set something aside, saving whatever he has prospered, so that no collections will be made when I come. So to keep this all straight in our minds, number one was the motivation for giving. Number two was the purpose of giving. And then under the purpose of giving, there were four priorities of giving. I'm sorry. Yeah, four. The pastor, the saints in the church, the saints outside of the church, and then anyone else who may be of need. And they may be unbelieving, but yet you're showing your love to them when the Lord leads you to do so. So number three, then, I want you to notice, number three, the frequency of giving. The frequency of giving. There was a rhythm to this giving that encouraged their faithfulness. This was not a random thing or just when someone had two or three bucks to throw into the offering plate, okay? He asked them to be faithful weekly, resolving to give consistently to the point that when he came to them, he wouldn't even have to ask them to give anything again. It, the, the, the collection was already there and ready to go. He knew if they were faithful, it would just be there. It'd be ready for him to pick up and deliver to the needy saints in Jerusalem, and he wouldn't have to do another love offering, right, at, at that time. The saints should never put their pastor in a position to have to beg for money to cover the expenses of the church and that sort of thing. Now, the church needs to put people in place who are upright and who handle the money well. And just so you know, the church is uh, in the process of, of getting all that stuff. I told you this is the year of getting our house in order, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, and that's our intention. That's the direction we're headed. But you should never, there should never be a point in time where the church is so low on funds that the pastor has to beg someone for money. And um, in actuality, the faithful giving should work like clockwork, according to what we see here in Scripture. And the funds are just there. Once per week, once per two weeks, once per month, whatever works for you, 
Regardless, it should be faithful and consistent. That's the model of Scripture, faithful and consistent giving in the local church. And if everyone in this church gave, every single family in this church gave, we would have the resources to do whatever the Lord calls us to do. That's a fact, okay? The typical church, in the typical church, on average, 20% of the church gives. The other 80% do not. That's the typical church. We're not the typical church, and we're not going to be the typical church. Amen? That's not who we're going to be. We're going to be faithful. If everyone gave faithfully, no one here would ever be in need. We could help those in our community who are in need as the Lord leads, and we could finance all of our ministry out of this church. Curriculum, food for fellowship meals. Uh, One day, maybe the Lord will set aside some land for us, and we can build a building and What an incredible joy that would be. Amen. So Paul clarifies, number one, the motivation for giving. Number two, the purpose and priorities of giving. Number three, the frequency of giving. And here's number four, the participants of giving. Who are the participants? Who are involved in this endeavor? Look again at verse two. Here's what he says. Each one of you is to set something aside. Each one of you. This is a storehouse mentality. Each one of you are giving in order to store it up so that there would be enough. It could be free-flowing, and there would never be a time of of drought, if you will. This means 100% of everyone within a local church should be a selfless, faithful giver. And remember, storing it up doesn't mean hoarding it, okay? Don't get those words confused. We're not hoarding it like I've seen so many churches do in the past. This is a tiny little church, you know, Nice little brick building. Everything looks pristine. They, you look at their bank account, they got like $2 million in there. They don't ever spend anything. They just meet on Sundays. They don't ever do any ministry, no outreach, nothing. But boy, they've got a bunch of money in the bank. And you would be surprised at how many churches out there that have that kind of cash on hand. But your local church should be your priority in giving. That, that needs to be understood. But by no means is it to be the only place you give, all right? Again, we should always be ready to help outside of these walls when the Lord leads, but be faithful to your church and then be ready to help out there whenever the Lord leads you to. Number five, Paul shows us how to decide the proportion of giving. Each person is to give, but his statement is, quote, give as he may prosper. Give as he may prosper. So I want to clarify one confusing matter. For years, preachers have taught the principle of tithing 10% as a biblical New Testament requirement. And I'm just here to tell you, this is the manipulation that I've been talking about. They say if you don't give at least 10%, then you're stealing from God. Well, is this the case scripturally? Are we robbing God if we don't give at least 10%? Well, no, that's not the New Testament principle. I want to share with you the New Testament principle. Unfortunately, as I said, many ministers have manipulated their people by twisting scriptures out of context. Now, the Jews had various requirements for giving to support the nation of Israel and support all the things that they were involved in, the temple, the various feasts and holy days, to support the Levite priests in the temple, a sort of social program to help the orphans and widows. It was basically, guys, it was taxation. Okay, that's what it was. And it all came up to about 23%, not 10%. 10% was one portion of the overall uh, amount of money that they were expected, required to give uh, to the church or to the temple. And 
in uh, Malachi, the comment, there's the people ask a question to the Lord, how have we robbed you? And the Lord answer in tithes and contributions. Specifically, they were withholding that required 23%. And so they were technically robbing God. But even then, the attitude and the heart of the giver is to be one of faithfulness and giving out of your first fruits. That I recognize that this is God's gift to me. I will give back the first portion of what I have in order to honor him. Okay? The New Testament principle of giving is that we give as we prosper. In other words, not requiring a set amount from the saints or even a percentage, rather proportionally. So first, decide according to your own income what is honoring to God. What is honoring to God according to your own income. And let me just say this. It's, it should feel like a little bit of a stretch. Okay? There's, there's a sacrifice. When, when they used to make offerings, an animal had to die. They gave up one of their, one of their animals in order to sacrifice that. And so it should feel like a, a bit of a sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, each one, each one again must give just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. If I'm imposing a 10% requirement on you, that's under compulsion. That's, tell, that, that's telling you what to give. You should give freely out of your heart, okay? As we see, as you purposed in your heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when you understand the principle of giving and you're willing to give of yourself because you know what's at stake and you know what it's doing. It's, it's financing the kingdom of God and ministry here on earth. We also see in the New Testament some guidelines as to how we decide in our hearts. Do we have stingy hearts or do we have gracious hearts? In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard or measure, it will be measured to you in return. So there's this idea of whichever measuring cup we use to give, the Lord's going to use the same sort of measuring cup to give back, to provide for us. Now, I'm not getting all namey claimy on you, okay, just so you know. I'm just preaching out of Scripture here that this, this is what God's Word says. So, so namey claimy is pushing it way out there to the extreme, okay? And it's manipulating because most of the time those, those preachers are wanting you to give all your money in faith so that they can buy their next jet, okay? That's what's going on there. That's not at all what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a gracious heart and hands that are open in giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. So whatever we decide in our heart, it should reflect that attitude of giving freely, sacrificially, knowing that Christ is our source and that he will provide for us. He's promised that. It may not be 10%. It might be 5%. For some of you, it might be 20%. I don't know what the case may be, but that's between you and the Lord. The point is, is that you're giving proportionally, and to some degree, it's a sacrificial form of giving, okay? For some of you, giving at all might be a sacrificial form of giving because you may be thinking, Pastor Mike, I don't have any extra to give. 
And here's what I want to say to you. I want to challenge your mindset because it's the opposite of what we see here in Scripture. So Jesus knows your needs. Do we all agree on that, that Jesus knows your needs? And Jesus will provide for you. Do we agree on that? So the money is inconsequential. Whether or not you think you have enough to give or not doesn't matter. Do you trust the Lord? Are you going to trust the Lord? He knows it's a stretch, and he will not allow you to go without essential needs. It may not mean you get to buy a fancy car. It may mean you need to simplify your life a little bit and maybe trim the fat a little bit, may cut, maybe cut out on some of the, the pleasures that you're enjoying, right? But you will have the essentials that you need, clothes on your back, food in your mouth, a roof over your head. Scripture tells us that we should be content with that very thing. In Mark 12, 44, Mark 12, 44, Jesus speaking of the widow's giving said this, Mark 12, 44, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all those putting money into the treasury for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And the wealthy, you see, were giving out of their wealth. And it was easy for them. It required no sacrifice. Um, she, however, gave out of her poverty. And it really did cost her something. Now, that doesn't mean you're supposed to give 100% of what you have, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Um, you should be a cheerful giver. Even when giving out of poverty, it's promised in Scripture that you get both spiritual blessings and physical provision, Okay? And I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. This is what Paul writes here. God is able to make every, every grace abound to you, so that in everything, at every time, do you see he covered the whole ball there? Every grace abounds to you, so that everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. If you will be a cheerful giver, God will finance your ministry. We're all ministers, every, each and every one of us, and he will finance you in order to do what he's called the church to do, and that should be your priority as well. So I'll tell you after having studied this, I've got areas of conviction in my own life. Like I, this hurt me a little bit as I was studying it. I'm going to reprioritize my own life to be a giver in order to honor the Lord and, and a giver in such a way, meaning I want to trim areas that, that need to be trimmed, cut out some things that need to be cut out, simplify in order to keep the priority that we're here to do God's bidding on this earth. We're here to serve a purpose. That's our whole point of existence is to bring him glory and money is trivial in the grand scheme of things. So, uh, there's not, this is not an area of my life or yours that we can ignore or skip over or neglect if we're to honor the Lord and, our, and, and with all that we are and with all that we have. We simply cannot just ignore this. This is part of it. It's part of the package. There's a great spiritual reward and blessing in pouring yourself out completely and trusting that he is your source and he's able to sustain you. In giving, the witness of the faithfulness of our church is revealed. The unity of our church is revealed that we're all giving to one cause, all of us, and the impact of our church will be revealed. And then here's 
here's the thing. The true, genuine heart of each and every one of us is exposed in this. Mine included. Because it puts a finger on the very thing that most of us find very, very personal. To the point that some husbands and wives have separate bank accounts. Like, that's, that's how, that's how, like... I want to keep my stuff away from your stuff, right? My money is my money. And that's kind of the attitude toward money. So we're kind of territorial about our money. But after revealing the glory of our eternal future in chapter 15, Paul here purposefully pivots asking us in light of that glorious truth, revealing that our treasures are not of earth where moth and rust destroy, God's word challenges us to ask, where our heart is. He's challenging us to ask where our heart is because what did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you can't serve God and mammon both. We really need to understand what Scripture says about giving and, to, and cut the strings of our attachment to that my money is my money sort of mentality. 1 John three seventeen. 1 John 3, 17. Well, he's got a way to say things that'll just get right to the point of the matter and cuts right to the quick. 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, how is that even possible? If you know someone is in need and you have the resources and you aren't willing to help, is that Christ-like? Is that reflecting Christ's love? If we love him, if he's our treasure and we fully trust in his ability to provide for us, then we should all live with open hands. Paul continues in verses 3 and 4 here in, in chapter 16. He says this, verses 3 and 4. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So what does he mean by if it is fitting? Well, I believe he's saying if the Corinthians gift is worthy and something that he's not going to be embarrassed by, like they've actually given and he's not embarrassed by it, then he will take it to Jerusalem personally. But it's like if it's like something he's ashamed of, you guys just take it on your own. You, I don't want to be seen around that measly offering, right? There was a sense that he was expecting them to give to a degree that he would not be ashamed to deliver it personally. And as I look at my heart and as I look at my life and my record of giving and periods of time where I gave nothing at all and periods of time where I made excuses, I'm telling you, my heart is different now. I'm telling you that the body of Christ, our hearts need to be different towards this uh, principle in Scripture. Ask yourself, do I give sacrificially? Would it be such that Christ would be ashamed of it or is it are giving something that truly honors God. There was an Athenian statesman by the name of Aristides, and he wrote of the Christians that he encountered in the second century. And I'll be closing in just a moment, if you'll just hang with me for a few more minutes here. So he wrote this about this church, the church people that he encountered in, as I said, the second century. And it's a fascinating testament to their impact and their witness and their unity as a local church. He says, quote, They walked in humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They despise not the widow 
and they grieve not the orphan. He that hath distributeth liberally to him that hath not. If they see a stranger, they bring him under their roof, and they rejoice over him as if he were their brother. And they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit in Christ. But when one of those poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is in prison or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for the prisoner's needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there's among them a man that is poor and needy and they have not an abundance of necessity, the people will fast two or three days that they may be able to supply the needy with his necessary food. Incredible. Amazing. Fasting themselves in order to give, to save up, to store up what they didn't need to give to the ones in need. It's an incredible picture of the heart of a cheerful giver and one of self-sacrifice and should be the attitude of each and every one of us, especially in this local family toward one another. It reminds me of what the king said in 2 Samuel 24. He says, quote, 2 Samuel 24, if you're taking notes, I will not offer to the Lord my God sacrifices that have cost me nothing. That, that, that hits. I will not offer to the Lord sacrifices that have cost me nothing. In this short section here, Paul demonstrates in a beautiful way the motivation of our giving, the purpose for our giving, the priority of our giving, the participants in our giving, the frequency of our giving, and the proportion of our giving. Let each of us consider this morning where our treasure is. Do we genuinely see Christ our Lord as our true source? Do we trust him to provide for us and our families? Do we freely give as a cheerful giver, excited that we get to take part in the kingdom work here on earth? For as long as we're given, we get to take part in that and give toward that and see the fruits of that in our own lives and in the lives of our own children. It all goes together, folks. It all goes together. That's what I have to say this morning. I hope the the message about giving has blessed you. I hope that you've learned something new today. I know that I have, and I know that it's been a convicting message for me. Perhaps it is for you. Perhaps you've got all your ducks in a row and you've got it down. Praise the Lord. I am so thankful for those of you who are faithful givers. I challenge those of you in the room who may not have ever really thought about giving or or made it a, a point, but I'm just telling you, you will be so blessed to know in the body of Christ that coming and being a part of this church and you're contributing to this local family and you're contributing to the work of the Lord, it will truly give you a joy that you've probably not ever felt before. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.